Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant Austin Channing Brown, author of I'm Still Here. There's a new young adult version of the book out for all of our kids to read. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. When you are quite literally told that you are not human, what what option do you have? What's, what's the other option <laughs> other than to overthrow the system that is telling you you're not human, you know? And so this is work. This is this is generational work. And we have had to do that generational work largely alone. Right? Because 
when women got the opportunity to vote, we were purposefully left out, right? When the civil rights movement was happening, we were the backbone of that mission, but our names don't appear in the books, in our history books, right? That we, we know how to move through systems that weren't built for us because there are so few that are. The only systems that are built for us are the ones we build together. Otherwise, we spend our entire lifetime in this country moving through systems that were not made for us. And in fact, that weren't not just not made for us, but made to squash us, made to make sure that we do not succeed. And so in, in order to live into our own human dignity, the only option is to change the world <laughs> because this is unacceptable. So says Austin Channing Brown. Her ability to distill essential truths always sends chills down my spine. Austin is a powerful and resonant public speaker, racial justice advocate and educator, an author whose best-selling book, I'm Still Here, has catalyzed an indelible impact on how we perceive and discuss what it means to be a Black person, let alone a Black woman, in America. She just wrote a young adult version, which is required reading for all of our children as we work to build an equitable future. Austin is also the CEO of Herself Media, a platform creating content and narratives to provide a supportive space for those who find themselves on the outskirts of traditional power. Today, Austin joins me in unveiling the facade of what it means to be good and how culture detrimentally enforces this burdening standard of goodness on women. We discuss the importance of anger and how it can be a navigational tool. By examining her own anger, Austin learned to move that energy toward creating community and literature that relentlessly fights for the future that America needs. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Your book cover, so delicious. Thank you. And I Thank love the you. title. Thank you. Well... I hope you like the book. I hope you like the chapter on anger. We're going to talk about anger today, too. Ooh, yes. Yeah. The premise of the book is about goodness and the claims, the way women, particularly white women, are trained for goodness. If I was just walking through a store and I saw that title, I would a thousand percent pick it up because I was the good girl growing yeah. up. I was so good. And it felt like handcuffs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The way that it becomes this corral and this conditioning, particularly because, as you know, these become exterior ideas of bars you're supposed to clear, and you don't quite know mm -hmm. what they are, where they are, okay. who is adjudicating. Uh -huh. And what the punishment is for not clearing the bar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, let's start there. I'm curious about how... For you, what did that, I mean, I know how it showed up for me as like high achieving and earning awards and whatnot. How did it show up for you? 
Oh, same. I was always a straight A student. I didn't get a, I didn't get a B on a report card until I was in college. And I called my dad crying mm. because I was so used to, yes, just like achieve, constant affirmation, achieve, 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 achieve. Well, it was just expected, right? So we, I didn't get like money for doing chores or a celebration yeah. for having a good report card. It was like, well, of course, of course you do because you're a part of this family. Like that's, yeah, that's what we do. So get back out there, kiddo. Yeah. But what, what, ha- when you were crying, when you hit that B, like what was inside of you? Fear or shame? I think it was shame. I think I was like, oh, I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. I've been trying so hard to be perfect. And thankfully, my father, when I go to tell him, he said, Austin, do you know what they call doctors who got B's in, in, in medical school? I was like, no, what? He was like, doctor. Huh. <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> That's <What>? amazing. <laughs> That's what he said. And I think honestly, since that moment, it has been a process of me undoing at least what I thought was the expectation, right? And now after that talk, I was like, maybe it wasn't my parent. Like maybe this was an internal thing, right? Of trying yeah. to be good enough of trying to be wanted, trying to make my parents proud, trying to write and just having my sense of self deeply rooted in achievement. Yeah. And so, yeah. So it's been a process of allowing myself to be human, honestly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, similarly, I was an incredibly performative child mm-hmm. and I've spent a lot of time trying to get close to that to understand exactly what you were saying. Well, that's in some ways what the book is about, but also is this familial? And then I have hit a point of recognizing how cultural it is. And yes, my parents demanded and expected excellence, but they sent me to a school without grades. They, in so many ways, cushioned me from these sorts of achievement standards. And so it's not, I can't say that it was them. I went to this t- hippie alternative school where we jumped the ditch at lunchtime and went rock climbing and skiing. You know, it wasn't, they weren't grinding on me like that. There was just yeah, this my idea. Parents certainly never yeah. punished me, right? Yeah. And yet I knew, I knew that some part of their pride in me was rooted in the achievements, right? Yeah. But I'm also, I, my parents got divorced when I was eight. And that was a time when people didn't really discuss <laughs> yeah. divorce or what divorce did to children. And because I was in a Christian school, there weren't a whole lot of us who had divorced parents. So, and then I was raised by my dad, which nobody was experiencing. <laughs> wow. Me. So yeah. I also just felt like unrooted, unmoored a little bit. And I think school then became the place where I felt safe, where everything was the same. And so I think it was an, also just a natural place for me to excel. Yeah. Because I really liked being there. <laughs> I really no. liked being at school. Yeah. Same. It's funny. I wrote this piece. It's about my relationship with my mom and her ambivalence mm-hmm. about parenting 
or mm-hmm. wanting to be a mother, sort of the distinction yes. between loving us and wanting us or wanting that identity. Yes. And Ooh, you're not going to get me to talk about this today. <laughs> I am not prepared to talk about this. <laughs> and uh-huh, I, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sort of too, what I think as I go into sort of the performative parts, I think a lot of it was like a desire to reflect glory back on to my mom, who wasn't interested. She's not a narcissist like that. She's not, she was never, she was never to this day taken anything I've done as her own in a way that's almost a little bit like, aren't you proud of me? Like she really <laughs> doesn't, she doesn't do that. She doesn't play that game. So it's been interesting to sort of wonder also how much of that was me saying like, look how, what a good job my mom did even though she kind of hated the rituals of motherhood. I I definitely felt like a burden as a child. I felt like my parents spent a ton of, like basically every dime they had on my mm-hmm. education. And then because of the divorce, we were constantly being carted back and forth between whoever's house we needed to go to. And I think I've never said this out loud before, but I think I was just desperate for my parents to like and enjoy me. Yes. I, I, but I spent most of my childhood feeling like I was just a burden. Mm. Austin, I, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. And it makes me think. It's funny as I was working on this piece and getting closer and closer to it and this instinct that I have to defend my mother mm. even as much as yeah. I, I want to be. She's honest. She loves the piece. That's the other thing. She completely is like, this is true. This is an accurate. This is That's true. so funny. Yeah. But that feeling of, you know, and I write about this in On Our Best Behavior in the chapter on sloth, like being my mother's baggage, you know, being carted yeah. around not as an accessory, not as something that was displayed, but as, yeah, as a burden and feeling so much that my mother's ambition, because she grew up yeah. in the, you know, second wave feminism and, you know, read Ms. Magazine, but grew up in a very poor Catholic family, total scarcity, mm-hmm. that, you know, her ambition was sort of the pyre for my own life. And that's hard, you know, but I don't think I'm alone. I don't think you're alone in in this carrying that forward. I think that my parents, just hearing you say that, I think that my parents also felt like they had to be good. They had Mm -hmm. to be high achieving. Even when I was a teenager, I used to joke that my mother was born grown up and she's Mm -hmm. just slowly gotten younger because she's been... The older she's gotten, the more she's been allowed to just be herself. <laughs> yeah. You know, but the expectations, or at least the expectations she held herself to were so high. And then my dad actually is one of the youngest. He's the fourth in line of five. And when he was a teenager, instead of going to the school that they all went to, the school down the street, the school in the neighborhood, he got pulled out and sent to boarding school because he was so good at sports. And so now suddenly he is thrust into this environment where he's, you know, maybe one of 10 Black people in the entire school, let alone his class, where now he has to excel, you know? Yes. And so I think both of my parents, like their identities are kind of rooted in that. And then I 
yeah, became a product of. <laughs> of that. And in yeah. addition to their own marriage, you know. <laughs> yeah. When you're talking about your mom becoming progressively more childlike too, I think for so many people in the country, you know, my mom didn't really have a, I mean, she had a, a mom who was very young, very poor, no mm. Catholic, no birth control, not very, did not like her children equally, you know? Mm-hmm. So my mom mm-hmm. says like that really helped because she didn't have favorites. She just didn't like them. So my mom as the oldest too, you know, was never mothered herself. Mm, and then that. you think about that. I hear that. That tradition. And then also, you know, I write about this a, a little bit in the chapter on envy, but sort of envying your children for having you as a mother is, I think, alive. This therapist, Galit Atlas, talks about that. And it's really interesting. interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, that also makes me think about how the women in my life, because of those expectations around being good, also weren't allowed then to make similar choices that I made. Yeah. So my mom did what she was supposed to do. She went to college and then she got married and then she had the two kids and she followed her husband to a place she didn't want to live. And suddenly she had this life that was like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, you know, and she couldn't pretend anymore that that was the life that she wanted, you know, whereas I met my husband when I was in college But I didn't feel like, oh, I have to marry him now, right? And then we waited eight years before we had a child because I didn't feel like, oh, this is what I have to do now, Yeah, you know? And so I was able to wait until I was ready, until I felt stable, until I felt like I had established my career until, you know? And so I, I have the privilege of being a different kind of mom. Yeah, because of the shift in societal expectations, what it means for me to be good. Yeah. Do you feel like you've you've thrown that sort of that yoke of goodness off? Do you feel like it doesn't drive your life or is it still present for you? No, it's definitely still present. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely, definitely still (laughs) present. (laughs) I know. I'm I'm very much a cliche and that I feel like I don't know if I'm a good mom. I don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. like I, you know, I'm still here. You know, the uh, first one hit the New York Times bestsellers list, but it didn't immediately hit the New York Times bestsellers list. And so I feel like, I don't know, like, is this good? Was this good? But like, but it was good before, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, like I didn't rewrite it to make it better so that it would hit the New York Times. Yeah. Like, you know? So yeah, I still struggle all the time. Even when I'm on stage speaking about racial justice, I am very intentional about thinking about my audience as the person who has the least power in the room. Mm. And being- Say more. Able- yeah, usually. Right. But there's usually someone who also has their benefits tied to this place who also is relying on them for a salary, who is also right, like things mm-hmm. that I don't. And so then what does it mean then for me to come in and an act of solidarity with whoever has the least amount of power in the room 
and say what needs to be said, right? And that is how I have to redefine goodness, right? So now goodness isn't about who gave me the check. <laughs> yeah. Right? It isn't about impressing whoever gave me the check, right? Now goodness is about how can I affirm and empower, right? The other generally black women in the room, you know? Yeah. And so, but it is definitely still an undoing and a reimagining of how I define goodness. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I want to talk to you about Jesus a little bit. And <laughs> no, but specifically Let's along these. I, no, I, I <laughs> love Jesus. Let's talk. <laughs> I know you love Jesus. I love Jesus too. And I am a late in life. Jesus lover. I hadn't really thought okay. much about Jesus. And I came to Jesus through Mary Magdalene. And Ooh. one of the things that I love so much, and, and when we think about these cultural codes of goodness, which are outside of us and adjudicated by exterior authorities, mm -hmm. et cetera, judges, professors, yep. experts, what I love so much about Mary Magdalene and her gospel, her Gnostic gospel, is that you know, the, and this exists, I think, in the Bible too, but that it is so much about like the good is inside. This is an interior journey yes. to the goodness yes. inside of each yes. of us. And so mm -hmm. thinking about you on that stage telling the truth 
so that others can tell the truth about their lives too right is much more aligned i think with what jesus seemed to actually be saying well i was really grateful at a young age to have two actually a lot of <laughs> a lot of different church experiences because i went to you know a private christian school that was assemblies of god but then my father and my stepmom went to a black Baptist church. And then my mom <laughs> skipped all over the place. So she was Presbyterian and she was Episcopalian. And she was, she was like, ooh, my little butterfly. She's my little butterfly. <laughs> but consequently, I figured out pretty early in my life that even though these were all Christian traditions, they all believe something different. Other than I love Jesus, right? There was, other than that, there was a whole lot of variation and interpretation. And, and I think that allowed me the freedom to say, oh, I like this one over here. Yeah. And the one that I liked was essentially a black Jesus, right? A Jesus that understood and saw the poor and that wanted to meet needs and that would carry you through anything. And right, who is just so present as opposed to the God who had so many expectations on how you behave. Now, let me be very clear. Black churches have plenty of expectations. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be very clear. <laughs> Depending on which one you go to. Okay. There could be lots of rules and many of them stupid. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there, but at the particular church, right. That I was growing up in, it was so much more about the presence of God in our lives, God with us, than who we were supposed to be in order to be loved by God, right? Mm. That part didn't exist in the church that I went to. And so that was the God that I fell in love with. And consequently, right, that has helped me redefine goodness because that's so much of what Jesus was doing, right? That's why he yeah. made all the church people so mad. <laughs> it's like yeah, making, exactly. Pissing other people off. <laughs> it's so like, wild when you. This is the rule, and Jesus was yeah. like, well, <laughs> "No, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> And he's, you know, what I think people, I it seems like people are starting to actually recognize and acknowledge him for who he was in the Bible, but he wasn't like creating a papacy or this apostolic all-male tradition or or mega churches like he was wandering around in the desert with 12 people He's you know a good time by himself yeah it's pretty one wild of, one of the 12 betrayed him yeah <laughs> well technically two <laughs> you know like he was experiencing life yeah no certainly and it's interesting to think about Again, I mean, The Seven Deadly Sins, which is sort of the superstructure of my book, mm -hmm. again, not in the Bible, not mm -hmm. in the Bible. And, <laughs> right. you know, it's like Nora McInerney is like, they're fa Bible fanfic, right? So much of this is... That's great. <laughs> I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, but so much of this is sort of, we pass it on to each other without going to the source or examining the actual meaning and it really takes yeah, us we rely on the interpretation of others right yeah and and that was actually another thing that my pastor used to say all the time he was like you don't you don't have to take my word for it like you could you could go read it 
Like yeah. you could go, you could go get dictionaries. You can like, you can study this for yourself. So here's what I see, but you don't have to take my word for it. Yeah. The other thing that I think is so revolutionary about Jesus, when you look closely and this very much aligns with what you talk about at length, and I'm still here, is that mm. he was very much a proponent of right action, not yes. right speech. And yeah. we are in, we are such a perform. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I'm <laughs> saying it. We are such a performative culture. It is throw up a post, right. move on with your life, you right. know. It's like, here are my black friends as a white woman using diversity as a, a defensive shield. Right, right. And, you know, I, t- I talk to myself. Well, I talk to myself anyway, but I do talk to myself right. about this all the time. Like, who? how can I say anything about any issue if I'm not actively engaging with it? Right. Yeah. Right. And... I mean, where do you think we are? I mean, it's been a it's been a ride in the last couple of years. <laughs> Have we become even I worry we're more performative than we've ever been. And at the same time, I feel like we have made progress, but how, where are you? How do you feel? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know how I feel. I have no idea where we are. <laughs> no idea. Things have change so quickly that doing, you know, racial justice work and anti-racism education looked like one thing before Ferguson. Yeah. And then Ferguson happened and there was this major shift with Black Lives Matter, right? And all the community organizing that came with it, right? So not just the hashtag itself, but what it meant for people to organize around that hashtag and to use that as a rallying cry for the work in their own lives, right? But then there was another shift when we got a certain president, right? And then another shift in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. And so because there have been so many like seismic, you know, events that have happened, it's honestly really difficult for me to even say where we are right now. Yeah. Um, because it hasn't, it hasn't been long. We haven't been in this long enough for me to be able to even say, right? So I think there's only one thing that I know for sure. And the one thing that I know for sure is that there are people of color still working for change right where they are. Yeah. That's what I know for sure. <laughs> I know for yeah. sure that there are people of color who are in the work, who are doing the work for their own survival and out of a sense of calling and passion. And they are doing it with the people who say that they believe the same, right? Yeah. All the rest is fluff, right? In the media, out of the media, at the conference, on social media. You know, it's like, who knows, right? Those things are always sort of shifting and we never know what's happening behind those posts, right? Because it's certainly possible that there's a black woman who's like, all right, all you white women today, what you're going to do is, right? <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like we have no idea. And so, yeah, I, I think it remains to be seen. 
but the history, the racial history in America has always been circular. Right. And so we get wins and then America's like, whoa, 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 nope, we don't like that. And tries to go backwards. And then we get wins and then America tries to go backwards and then we get wins and then America tries to go backwards. And I think those cycles have gotten shorter because of yeah. all the seismic shifts that have happened in the last 15 years. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com thread. Masterclass dot com slash thread. And it also feels, I don't even know how to phrase this comment or question, but I feel like hopefully maybe we're getting into a place where we can be extra nuanced around sort of all of these Venn diagrams of oppression for anyone who hasn't read women, race, and class the way that these intersect. Because that's so much of, you know, growing up in Montana where it's rural and there's a, a lot of – it's just not a wealthy state. And yeah. and so you, you run into – you know, when I go home, it's also very white aside yes. from a pretty large indigenous population. And so you get into these conversations where people are like, but my life is hard. And, and I get it. It's true. That's right. And it's true. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so it's like if we could get into deeper and deeper and more nuanced conversations where we understand the intersecting filters of all of these factors. I also feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, that there's just so much blatant misogyny happening in our culture right now. And sort of circular firing squads amongst women. I don't know. It's really interesting to me to watch where I, I feel like I'm watching a lot of white men just completely escape all of these conversations, all accountability. It's actually pretty rare to see a white man engaged in any social justice conversation, right? 
again, I think it goes to goodness and women being like, how do I prove my goodness? And men being like, I don't need to prove my goodness. I just need to be powerful. That's what I'm conditioned for. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I've never really thought about what's behind it, except right, except for power, right? Just like a real blanket. Yeah. Statement, right? yeah. <laughs> no, I think the worst thing that you can say about a woman is that she's bad. Ooh-wee. Yeah, you know, you know, because the vast majority of my community, particularly like the people that I, I would model my life after, right? Because mm-hmm. those are Black women, right? The only framework that I have for them is the people who move the world. Yeah. Right. And so men get a lot of credit, right? For, for whatever, right? I.e. I. Dr. King. Yeah. Right. And, and, and he should, the man was brilliant. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but he also did not create change all by himself. Mm-hmm. Black women printed those flyers, okay, to bring everybody to the church. Black women cleaned up the church after everybody was gone. Black women were sitting in meetings where they were helping to organize and simply didn't get their names listed. Black women were, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I come from a tradition where Black women are the forces of change Mm -hmm. everywhere, They just don't get the credit for it. Yes, I agree. I think it seems, at least in progressive circles, like that's far more recognized than it was. Yeah, I think it's becoming more recognized, right? But But it's also becoming more recognized because Black women have been like, listen to Black women. Yeah. Right. Like, like that's like, that's our hashtag. It's like, yes. listen to us. Right? We, we do actually know what we're talking about, you yes. know? Yeah. But it, it's, it's nice to, it's nice to have some of these, you know, we're, we, we talk about nuance and that nuance is so crucial. And I spend a lot of time when I do racial justice work going, trying to go deeper and trying to be like, okay, so here's how these things clash. Like here's where they come together but here's how they clash too right trying to have that nuanced conversation but it's also really nice that there are some I don't want to call them cliches but easy go-tos right that actually honor black women because that's new for us right like Mm -hmm. listen to black women and to just like have that stop the whole room like that's new (laughs) and so yeah I would I would say that and this is where it becomes so tricky about social media, right? Is there is an argument to be made that it does change the world. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And that it's not yeah. just throwing up the post, right? And so I think the question is, are you living what you're posting? Yes, a thousand percent. Is it is it aligned, the action and the speech? Is, is it aligned? It's interesting, you know, you write at length about Black women's anger. And Mm -hmm. in that chapter in my book is about a fair amount of it is about allyship and poor allyship on the behalf of white women and the lack of tolerance culturally for angry women at all. Mm -hmm. And how this is stuffed, how we're not trained in conflict as children, how girls are, you know, pressured to turn it into covert forms, whispering, lines building, gossip, exclusion. Etc., which is then attributed to us as our nature falsely. 
Whereas men, boys are allowed to sort of be verbal, be physical, be aggressive openly. But, and then you think about social change driven by black women. And I'm curious if you think this is just an an outsider's perspective that black women have learned over time how to use their anger and metabolize it, transmute it, and be sort of take good anger and use it in the world and are far more equipped for this than any other group. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> right. And I, again, it has been out of our need for survival, right? When you are quite literally told that you are not human, mm-hmm. what, what option do you have? What's, what's the other option <laughs> other than to overthrow the system that is telling you you're not human, you know? And so this is work. This is this is generational work. And we have had to do that generational work largely alone. Mm-hmm. Right? Because when women got the opportunity to vote, we were purposefully left out. Right. Right? When the civil rights movement was happening, we were the backbone of that mission, but our names don't appear in the books, in our history books, right? That we we know how to move through systems that weren't built for us because there are so few that are. Mm-hmm. The only systems that are built for us are the ones we build together. Otherwise, we spend our entire lifetime in in this country moving through systems that were not made for us. And in Mm -hmm. fact, not just not made for us, but made to squash us, Mm -hmm. made to make sure that we do not succeed. And so in, in order to live into our own human dignity, the only option is to change the world because <laughs> this is unacceptable. So how for you, when you feel that rage, when you feel that violation, when you see injustice, how do you do you have like a conscious process or do you are you just it's it's a train it's you understand the information and you understand, you know, because I think a lot of white women don't don't know. We have not been trained. We don't know how to access it, process it, use it. Do you have a process or is it just, you just have been doing it for a long time? First of all, I think that it shows up differently for different women, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's not prescriptive and that that's what makes it so hard, right? Cause you do actually have to do the work to figure out how does anger show up for you and what happens with that anger, and so the truth is, when I was a kid, I was actually upset with myself because when I felt anger, what I wanted to be was the Black woman who would start shaking her head and snapping her fingers all in your face and be like, mm-hmm. I wish you would. Try me again. See what happens. 
but that wasn't me. (laughs) It's a a little bit me now, but it wasn't me as a kid, (laughs) you know, because I was busy being good. Yes. I was, I was a delight to have in class. Right. And also it's kind of just not me, right? Like I I don't really enjoy confrontation despite being a racial justice educator, right? I would, I would so much rather find peace. Yes. Right. And that is just in me. It's just who I am. And so for me, the way anger first started showing up was in creating whatever was missing. So in my, you know, Catholic high school, the Bible was being interpreted in ways that I was like, that ain't what we think. <laughs> so like, that's, that's very interesting, but that ain't what we be saying over here. And so I started a little Bible study for anyone who was interested in other interpretations of the same things we were learning in school, right? But I didn't consciously realize that that is how I was channeling my anger. Mm. That only happened in reflection, right? Where I would look back and go, oh, I I just, I don't do this with my anger, right? What I do is I go create what I want. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I do, right? And I invite other people to come along, right? Eventually that rage got turned into writing, right? So when I first started writing my blog, it was very like educational. It was very like, okay, here's a metaphor for how you can understand racial justice work, right? By the time we get to Ferguson, I'm like, now listen here, people. Yeah. <laughs> I have just about had it with you, America, <laughs> you know, and you can, you can, you can actually watch the growth of my rage through the blog. And so I think that, that we have to honor our anger. I think we also need to realize how often anger has fueled social change. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll speak of the civil rights movement because that's what I know the most, right? It's not like Black folks were like, yay, let's go on a march. Oh, I can't wait to make my sign, right? Black people were pissed. Like, I'm not sitting at the back of that bus. Now, one more day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not walking to the bus all early in the morning only to see it drive away purposefully and slam the doors in front of my face. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it again. If I have to stand in front of this voter registrar and fill out this little application 27 times, that's what I'm gonna do because I am tired of living in a place where I am a citizen and having no say in my local government. I'm not doing it. I can't do it anymore, right? That's so much of social change is driven by rage, mm-hmm. right? The question then becomes, what do you do with that rage? And I honor the Black women who are like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this today. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> nope, 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 right? Because sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen. Sometimes what needs to happen is everybody in the room needs to get quiet. (laughs) And a black woman needs to say, this isn't happening. Not one more time. Right. 
Mm-hmm. But sometimes what needs to happen is a new system needs to be built. And sometimes what needs to happen is we need an alternative. And sometimes what needs to happen is we need a movement. And sometimes what needs to happen is we need a new policy, right? Because we need, because with systemic change comes lots of opportunity. Yes. There are all kinds of ways that the system needs to be changed. But you got you got to get in the game and you have to appreciate your way of channeling that anger. And truth be told, I still struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And I am I'm trying to like dig my roots, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, Austin, you are a writer and it's good and it's OK that what you are is a writer. Because I feel like I should be organizing the protest. Right. Because that feels like the higher form of work, right? But the truth is, is that if I was, if if that was my job, we would be walking down the wrong street. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That is not my gift. Okay. Yeah. I will get a very crucial detail wrong. I will have people there at the wrong time. I will send out the, e- the wrong email on the wrong day. Like that is not worth <laughs> you should be doing what I should be doing is writing about why we are marching mm-hmm. right and yes. that is the way that I channel rage into social change in addition to showing up and speaking for the person with the least amount of power in the room I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life but that wasn't the case for me I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift. And over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. 
Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit FrameBridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's FrameBridge.com. You mentioned building movements and I think about sort of women and as a collective and a lot of women who are, who I have a lot of compassion and empathy for, who are very dependent on patriarchal power for their own safety and security. They don't know how to shift, move into a different framework. I think a lot of women are stuck or feel stuck in between. And I have a lot a lot of empathy for that. I get it because fear of safety, fear of security has run my life, scarcity, all of that in the way that it ran it for my mom. Mm. What does that look like in your mind if we could really get women, because that's all I care about is getting women on side with other women. Doesn't mean we have to all be a block in terms of every single issue, but like women supporting on side. How do we stop this madness. What do, what does that movement in your mind look like? I think it requires a, a lot of things. <laughs> and I think one thing it requires is vulnerability, mm-hmm. which is something that there are only specific white women in my life, right? Who've practiced vulnerability as opposed mm-hmm. to reaching for power. Mm. And that reach for power means that they cannot be vulnerable. It means they cannot share the deepest, darkest things that are happening in their lives. It means they cannot identify with me because I don't have power, right? You know, it would it would require a certain level of vulnerability, right? And, and not not defensiveness, right? Not well, I have problems too, right? But like a real, you know. I might lose my child to suicide. I have a chronic illness and I'm in pain every day. I have depression. I, you know, like the the hard things that we are dealing with and to be able to share them with one another, mm. to be able to say, can you see me? And say, yeah, I see you, right? And then to take that same care and concern and be able to talk about the systems, right? Here is, I, I know, I know that you are not getting paid as much as the men in your life. I am not getting paid as much as you, right? What are we going to do about both? Yeah. Right? But yeah. It, re- it requires that. And, and, then, and that's the other side, right? Is the reaching for power. You, you can't keep reaching for power over. Mm-hmm. You have to fall in love with power with. Yes. You have to fall in love with being on the outside. You have to fall in love with not being invited onto the yacht or onto the golf course or at to the resort or right, whatever the privileges are, right? Of following the system of power. You have to fall in love with being on the outside. You have to fall in love with being surrounded by your sisters and you have to fall in love with the fight. Mm. 
that it brings you energy, that it brings, that it keeps you alive, that it's meaningful, that it gives you a sense of purpose, that, right, that you are invigorated by what you're learning about yourself and what you're unlearning about yourself. Yeah. Right. But there, yeah, if I could sort of sum all of that up. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't have one word for all of that, but I think... I think that's where it lives, right? I think that's where the connections live. It's beautiful. And I think that part of it, being a white woman myself, even though, you know, I have a very feminist, progressive husband, it's that I'm the primary breadwinner, et cetera, but definitely understanding my whiteness in that context. There's something too about, for a lot of these women, when you're sort of like, oh, the, it's not turning it's not a binary fight right it's not men are bad women good it is where where women feel torn right like they're condemning their sons or condemning their partners or but it's this like actually the movement is not against something it's for something it is for a more balanced equitable future where yeah, men are going to have to give some stuff up, but we promise it will be okay, right? There's not this sort of inherent antagonism that require that feels I think for women like you've got to burn your ho- you got to burn your house and denounce your children. And I don't think right. that it's positioned like that, but I think that's how it's often internalized. Like how how am I how do I go against you know how do I burn my life? Instead yeah. of saying, actually, we're going to evolve. We're stepping up here. We're evolving a new paradigm. I don't know. I wish I did. And maybe you disagree. I mean, maybe it does require burning the house. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I get asked questions about whiteness that I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't get you. <laughs> Well, only because I don't experience it, right? Yeah. At least not in that way, right? That the fight is all I know. I don't, I don't really know what it means to be comfortable, whether that comfort is healthy or not. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I can't talk about it in terms of sexism, right? And so, so I am sort of constantly talking to my husband, right, about what I experience because there's so many experiences we share because we're both black, right? But then I often have to do the work of being like, oh, but honey, you would never experience this because you're Mm -hmm. a man, right? I would experience this because I'm a black woman. Actually, one of the, the recent conversations that we had was about how much more black women understand what black men go through and are willing to fight for it and are willing to explain it and are willing to show up at the local whatever in order to you know demand better but how few men really understand and can do the same for black women mm-hmm. like when i talk about sexism i don't feel like I'm betraying my husband. Right. Right. I think I agree with your words. What I feel like I'm doing is calling people higher. Like it's your choice, but you could embody this if you want. Yeah. <laughs> or you could come higher. Right? Like yeah. you could be 
better and you could do better, right? And so I think because of the work I do, right, the, the white women that I encounter far more are those women who believe that they are being called higher, right? Who are now determined to raise anti-racist children and who, right? They it, essentially, they're functioning out of hope, right? And not just at sort of a, like an arbitrary, like, oh, things are gonna get better, right? Like a positive, you yeah. know, but are like, oh, I'm going to do the work that is required in order for things to get better. Yes. Right? And so I'm gonna call my family higher and I, but, but I think we also, or at least it helps when we have each other, right? Mm-hmm. It, and, you know, for all those women who are not the breadwinner, right? Who are getting an allowance. Yeah. Right? They need a sisterhood first. Right? Yeah. They need a sisterhood first. They do. They do. Well, Austin Channing Brown is a writer. That is her service and her gift. And if you haven't read I'm Still Here, What Are You Waiting For? And now there's a YA version, which is perfect for every child in your life. I'm going to read to you a bit from near the end of the book. She writes, This is the shadow of hope knowing that we may never see realization of our dreams, yet still showing up. I do not believe that I or my children or my grandchildren will live in an America that has achieved racial equality. I do not believe this is a problem that America will fix with any soon coming generation. And so I stand in the legacy of all that black Americans have already accomplished in their resistance, in their teachings, in their voices, in their faith, and I work toward a world unseen, currently unimaginable. I am not enslaved, and yet I look back and see centuries of creative evolution of the hatred for black bodies. I look at the present, police brutality, racial disparities, backlash against being politically correct, hatred for our first black president, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, and the election of a chief executive who stoked the fire of racial animosity to win. And I ask myself, where is your hope, Austin? The answer, it is but a shadow. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, 
for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.